Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go-to-market, and profitable revenue growth. I'm your host, Nita Bidway. Thanks for joining us. Today, I want to lay out a framework for how I think about good revenue and some ideas around what you can do across all the functions in your go-to-market to really do more for your business. I define good revenue as the revenue that benefits our business in both the short and long term. When I look at the customers who contribute to good revenue, these are the customers who get our value. They don't churn, they refer us business, and they're profitable. We love these customers, and we'd happily clone them if that was an option. When we choose to take a calculated risk for something one of these customers needs, it's to help us learn something and we're able to stay on our own strategy. So in sum, this revenue and these customers make us better, and we deliver value to them. That's a crucial piece of good revenue. Bad revenue, on the other hand, these are deals that might look nice in the short run, but they have long-term costs, sometimes that we have an inkling of, but oftentimes that we're just not thinking about when we said yes to the deal. For a bad revenue customer, these are folks who are high maintenance, they churn, they take up too much support time, we probably made too many concessions in order to get this deal, and overall, they make demands that distract us from our core business strategy. I think a lot of times we also worry about our reputational risk with bad revenue customers, and these are sometimes the deals that we secretly admit to ourselves, even before we say yes, that they're going to be a problem. The challenge is there's the long-term cost to these customers, and that is that we waste time at the wrong time trying to deliver something instead of focusing on the strategy that we're trying to meet. And the rationale on the front end is, well, we're small or our business is tight or we're missing targets. Like we really need this revenue. It's going to help us with a business goal or a deadline that we've got to hit. But at the same time, we just don't calculate the cost of taking on this kind of revenue. And I think about it a little bit like tech debt that it might look like something that is either a one-off or something that we might acknowledge to be a challenge, and we think we're going to come back later to fix it, but it takes a long time, we never really get it right, and then it drags down other things that we want to do as a business. So how do we get more good revenue? I see good revenue as a strategic choice and a continuous process. One thing that I constantly think about is how much the buyer journey has changed in the last decade. There's some interesting research that Gartner put out, and it's actually from a few years ago. They note that 83% of the buyer journey happens before a person or a company talks to your sales team, which I think is incredible. And I'm amazed that we don't work this into our go-to-market strategies more. What that really means is that you just get about 5% of the buyer journey as any single vendor, and your competitors get about 12%. There's also some similar data coming from other resources like McKinsey and G2 and TrustRadius. The numbers vary a little bit, but the general tenor is super clear. Customers want to do more of the buying journey on their own. They have agency, they have resources, and they have the internet. So this is something that's already happened. And for whatever reason, our companies tend to act like we still control this entire journey and we do everything we can to drive people in to talk to the sales team. And we're missing the larger opportunity. Some other data that I find really interesting 
There's some insights from McKinsey that note that 70% of B2B customers are making self-service purchases at the amount of around $50,000. 27% of them would spend more than $500,000, and 12% would do a million dollars in new business for a product they've never bought before, entirely self-serve. So I think the time of waterfall go-to-market, as I call it, has come and gone. And waterfall go-to-market is where the product team dreams up some sort of solution, they throw it over to the wall, the marketers, the marketers, you know, pretty it up and gin up some messaging. That's handed off to the sales team. The sales team doesn't use any of that messaging. They kind of cut through the bush on their own and uh, go out and hunt us some great customers. And then the customer success team or the customer service team is left holding, holding the bag at the end of the day because all of the dysfunction and churn and unhappy customers from that waterfall process come to roost in low retention and a number of other metrics that are very unprofitable for your business over the long run. So instead of having these disconnected metrics and teams that are heavily siloed, I think the solution is to have the upfront conversations as a leadership team or as a founding team about the trade-offs that you're agreeing to before you build the product. And I think in a good revenue framework, you need a single unifying strategy across the business before you build anything. And you want metrics and goals that are aligned to the end game. Instead of having every team focusing on just what they do, they're obviously going to do their jobs and I'm sure they're doing them well, but we need a longer term objective, a North Star. And that North Star can't just be, we're going to double revenue this year or we're, you know, some other metric like that. That's a metric. It's not a strategy. A strategy is a trade off. It's us making hard choices. And I feel like the single greatest indicator that we have a strategy is everyone's clear on what we're giving up to achieve our goals. So getting into this deep dive a little bit more, I think that two gating criteria that we won't talk about in this episode, but we will in future, you have to have tight positioning if you want to actually deliver on your strategy. And I also fundamentally believe that you've got to have your pricing and business model worked out before you build anything. We've got to think about what that looks like and how you want to sell the product before it's too late to make any of those changes. And we'll talk through a little bit of why as we kind of discuss each team in go-to-market. I define go-to-market as marketing, sales, customer success, product, and the back office. Legal and finance are critical partners in a go-to-market team too. The marketing side, got a long list here. First, the marketing is how you influence and convert customers who aren't ready to buy yet. That needs to be said again. But when I think about the fact that that buyer journey data is the vast majority of that journey is happening outside of my control as a company or as a sales leader, and I think sales leaders know this intuitively, but I think sometimes businesses forget about this, the opportunity to convert a customer, to actually acquire that and retain that customer is before they actually come to talk to you. And so marketing is how we can educate and influence them when they're just not in market yet. All the things we want our sales team to say or to do, we need to be thinking about how marketing can do that work up front. Because again, the buyers control the journey. People don't need to come to talk to us to learn about the problems that we solve. Second, 
I think marketers really need to focus on business goals instead of just marketing goals. I talk to a lot of marketers regularly and I hear this conversation over and over again. But at the end of the day, marketing is here for a business reason. And so I think it's important for B2B marketers in particular to really own pipeline and the health of that pipeline. Because the work that you need to do to acquire customers and to retain them, it requires a different strategy, different marketing tactics, and different KPIs. I'm really anti-MQL. I think it's a ineffective metric for the moment we are in time. It made a lot of sense when people were reliant on coming into a sales conversation to get information. And I think instead of having this excessive expectation that you're going to be able to directly attribute every single thing that your marketing team does to contribute to business, there's a new world out there that we can discuss in greater detail. But if you get your marketers focused on revenue and what they need to do to bring customers into a sales conversation who are almost ready to buy or basically ready to buy, that's the goal. They're not going to hit it every time, but just having that goal for them instead of saying any lead will work as long as it hits my 15,000 MQLs this month is a radical difference, and it's going to help you get to good revenue faster. Third, I think marketing teams absolutely need to be doing more in terms of customer insights. I am always surprised when I hear that marketers aren't talking to customers. I think this is a big miss and a missed opportunity. You should be talking to customers every day if you can. You need to have a research program. You need qualitative insights. You need quantitative insights. There's just no substitute for this. And there's virtually no market that's so small that you can't get to some kind of quantitative as well, at least directionally, even if for some reason statistical significance isn't available to you. I think it's also important to remember that this kind of conversation is different from, certainly it's different from a sales meeting, but it's also really different from the more tactical conversations that happen in product discovery. And I think both product and marketing teams would really benefit from having these deeper conversations with customers that are really getting to an understanding of what the customer's are experiencing because customers are experts in their own pain. They're not there to tell you what to do. They're not just there to validate something that you've built, which I think happens a lot on the product side. I like to look at it as we're there to really learn about the customer and about what they care about. And in the process of that, in the process of those conversations, we pick up insights that help us serve those customers better. It's also why I think you need a win-loss program, which is structured learning and a, a consistent process for obtaining and analyzing feedback from customers, both that you win and those that you lose, because you're going to learn a lot from both. Fourth, if you do the work, you are going to build a go-to-market strategy around the insights that you pick up from customer insights. I've done this in every content program I've built. And the way that I think about it is, we're here to try to teach buyers something that they don't know that could actually help them. So I don't think it's about any individual piece of content, although sometimes there might be some anchor content or, or something that's really deep that's helpful, but it's an overall process and experience of customer teaching, which is why I stopped gating content many years ago. And I highly recommend that if you're still doing that, really think about why you're gating content. Because aside from having a lead metric to meet, there's really no reason that gating content makes any sense. And I think of it as, why would we make it harder for customers to learn from us? 
I also think it's great to have a quick conversation with your sales counterparts because there's no seller out there that's interested in calling content leads. They're not leads. These are just people that downloaded your white paper. And if you do a good job in content generally, these are also people that you might be able to get to actually raise their hand and ask for a meeting with you. But that takes time and effort, and it takes some kind of insight that really can power your campaigns and the messages and that content. And again, you get those insights from regular conversations from customers where you're curious. Five, I think it's really important to be customer focused and competition aware. So I know a lot of folks worry a lot about what the competition is up to. Instead of that, I think you should transfer that attention to customers and to understand what they're actually focused on. Because in competitive markets, I often see that companies are competing with each other and everyone ends up being pretty disconnected from what the customer actually wants. So a savvy competitor can come in, do the work, talk to customers, and break through all of that noise by picking up insights that everyone else is missing because they're too busy competing with each other instead of really trying to serve those customers. Seven, I think we should really stop the debate over brand versus performance if we want to deliver good revenue. The answer is in the question. You need both. One is not more valuable than the other. Brand building is trust building. It's more than colors and fonts. It's not about making anything pretty. And it's not about asking the marketing thing to make anything pretty. It's, as I mentioned before, more than one campaign or one piece of content. It's building trust. Performance is about results. But I don't think about it as how many clicks did one campaign or one asset get. I feel like that misses the entire point. Performance is measured by pipeline velocity, by customer-reported attribution, and by acquisition and revenue metrics. At the end of the day, in total, did our work, did our campaigns, did our efforts to educate customers at scale before they want to talk to sales translate to more business for our company? That's the result. There are obviously metrics in individual campaigns and in individual projects and programs that help you, but that's directional feedback. And there's a broader conversation we'll have here about how you can think about this. But we really need to stop worrying about direct attribution. I've spent way too many analyst hours and too much budget trying to build custom attribution solutions in addition to all the tech out there. And the reality is we can only attribute a small portion of the buyer journey and we're wasting too much time arguing about it, which is why I think staying focused on revenue and on pipeline that actually converts is the way to get us all out of the mess of excessive attribution and the focus on being able to prove absolutely everything. The best proof is what customers tell us, and we get that through insights and through customer-reported attribution. Okay, so that was a long list on marketing. The others will be a little bit shorter. For sales, good revenue deals are worth more to the business, and we should compensate and goal our teams accordingly. So first, goals should be in the comp plan. So for example, if we're trying to acquire certain logos, maybe certain types of companies or large companies, or are there specific target accounts we have in mind, that is something we can actually put in a comp plan and encourage and incentivize our sellers to deliver on that. And our sales teams are open to this too. They would like to be partners in the broader business strategy, but we need to be crisp on what that is so we can make that part of what they are also focused on. Second, we need to reward the sellers who don't discount, who sell into the target segment and have high retention rates. That seller is worth more to me as a business leader. 
So I would not comp good revenue and bad revenue at the same rate. If someone is discounting, if there's a lot of churn, if they're great at bringing in logos, but none of those customers last, it's actually not worth as much to the business. And I know that might be controversial, especially in the you know heady days of too much money and growth metrics being the only thing that we cared about. But when I mean, you think about overall business level profitability and long-term success, it really matters that we drive good revenue, not just any deal that we can close. Another option here is to really think about, you know, are there incentives either that we give if customers are being retained or are there some things that we need to claw back if there are issues with renewal or there's never a threshold level of product benefit? I think there's some real creative thinking we can do here. And I don't think this is something that that we should ignore when we're revenue leaders who are overseeing sales or working with sales teams. Third, sales under pressure now to deliver value faster. And I think the strongest sellers know this. That's just why they don't waste their time or buyer time. But as a business, I see a lot of companies who are still wasting buyers' times in long rounds of qualifying meetings and wasting time with SDR follow-up that just doesn't need to happen and really irritates buyers. So I don't think this is for, I don't think we should goal our SDRs or our sellers on the number of emails they send or how many meetings they booked. Like this is just a waste of time. And I get why companies do it. They're trying to track productivity, but it's getting in the way of the actual communication and work that helps someone buy from you. So I think that how you get there is five, which is you need a better process for determining quotas for sales. And six, if we're able to do all of this, I think we get smaller, faster, more efficient sales teams. That makes the sellers happier. I think keeps the marketing team focused on building real pipeline. And then there's a real partnership between marketing and sales, which I think all top sellers and strong chief revenue officers totally get that having marketing be successful and having a brand that your buyer has actually heard of helps sellers sell. So the whole company works if we can build a virtuous cycle instead of having these siloed teams that are fighting with each other with metrics that don't make sense. Because the systems we have today, they burn out our best account executives. And it's really hard for someone to build, maintain, and close pipeline. It's also super expensive for the business. And now that everyone isn't getting the funding rounds they used to, this is just not a cost-effective way for businesses that are trying to scale. And there's an easy solution. And we can appropriately goal and structure both marketing and sales to get around this challenge. Moving on to the product team. On the product side, I think the first thing that I would really encourage, and again, I think it's probably controversial for some, but I don't think it should be. I think you've got to design your business model and the go-to-market before you build a product. These days, I just don't think anything should be released with a press release. If you want to talk to any journalist in the world, they will tell you that this is not helpful. It's very hard to get traction, maybe in a trade press, but a lot of companies don't want trade publications. They're looking for bigger business news. And I just think it's a waste and a burden on your communications professionals that doesn't help anyone. So instead of having the, we're going to write a press release and then we'll just have some ads and we'll figure out the pricing later. If you want to win, I think the important question is to shift our mindset from instead of us fighting about the problems we get to solve and who gets to make the decisions, which I think is a challenge in a lot of companies, a good revenue approach to this is 
if we solve this problem, does the customer care enough to pay us to make this business model work? Because we could build perfect tech, and I say tech because we work with a lot of tech companies, but I think this is true in any industry. We could build a perfect product, but it doesn't matter if no one wants to build it at a price that is sustainable for our business. And there's a lot that we can do through customer research and insights to get some real clarity about what customers value before we do all the work of building something. Because it's super frustrating to go down that process, even if you're committed to a waterfall go to market, and only to get to the end where marketing is having a hard time filling any sort of lead quota and the sales team's having a hard time closing anything. And it turns out that we didn't build or price the product correctly. And a lot of this work can be solved if we flip this around. So do your pricing first, and we'll have a bigger conversation about how I define pricing, because I think there's a lot that we can talk about there in terms of what business models and monetization can really look like. Second, I think that product leaders know this, but I think that this is still a trap for a lot of companies. Saying yes to one-offs will crush your product over time. And it happens a lot with smaller companies who are about to get a large deal, often with a prominent company. There's a hidden cost here. One, the SLAs really add up. And so do the one-offs from the sales team, because sometimes you're getting this in, in both directions, right? Like sometimes it's coming in from the customer, and sometimes it's just the seller really wanting to close a deal, which I don't fault anyone for. But I do think that is a miss on the company's parts, because I think that when that's happening, we either have some challenges with how we're thinking about our product strategy and in terms of it being something that is sellable. And I think that we probably haven't structured the comp plans or the goals correctly if the sales team is feeling like they need to push hard for one-offs because they can't sell the product that we've actually built. So we need to build value for the segments that we really need to win, and we don't need feature factories. This is a really important point. I think a lot of products, and again, this is more tech-specific, believe that value grows for the customers when we have a product that does a lot of things. And if you look at the data, the opposite is true. When you build a feature factory, it's really, really hard for your customer to figure out what the value is. And customers who are looking at 100 different features in a complicated product don't want to overpay for features they don't use. So getting clear on what the value is, is super important. And you need to know what that value looks like across a segment, not just a couple companies if you want a successful product company. If you're in a services business, then yes, that customization might make sense. But I think even in a services business, it's really important to think about whether the company you're selling to is a good fit for you and for the value you deliver. I think it's a, an important conversation we'll have. We'll talk more about that later. And that was the third one, by the way. Four. This is also one that I think is challenging sometimes when we're on the building side, that we need to recognize the effort to build may not be the value that the customer actually realizes. I think this can be tricky for some product leaders and some builders, but it's what we really should be trying to get out of discovery. And I think instead, product sometimes has discovery conversations that are about validating what we already want to build or how we want to tackle a problem. And I would really encourage all of us when we're out there having these customer conversations, whether they're in a more specific focused discovery conversation or general customer insights and customer research, 
what is the value from the point of view of the customer? And maybe a more um, a positive and optimistic way of looking at this is, let's say we have built a whole bunch of features, but our customers that are actually the most successful, meaning like they are renewing and they're, they're low maintenance, they're happy, they're good revenue customers, let's say that they're using our product in a way that we didn't really intend. And that might be a good indicator that there is some value in the product it's totally fine if we didn't intend it. I mean, obviously, it's great if we can you know, anticipate exactly how customers are going to use it, and that's wonderful. But maybe we still are delivering value. It just doesn't look the way that we expected it to. I think that the opportunity there is to like dive in, learn more from customers about what that value is, so we can double down on something, even if it wasn't what we intended. And as I said a minute ago, I think a lot of companies also get a little stuck in some features or some capabilities are just harder and more complicated and time-consuming to build. But that effort doesn't matter to the customer. The customer really only cares about the value they receive. And value is something that only the customer can actually determine. We, as the builder or the person that created the, the product or the offer or the service, doesn't get to decide what value is. The buyer gets to decide that. The customer gets to decide that. So, Having a little bit of emotional distance from our effort and our intention in building something can be a huge unlock in terms of recognizing how customers perceive value and then figuring out what we can do as a business so we can help customers get more of that value and we can capture some of that value for ourselves too. The fifth one is, this is maybe a a less uh, sexy one, but it's also an opportunity, which is we should plan farther in advance for product versioning deprecation when we launch something new. I see this a lot in tech that like we get really excited about something that we're building, but we're not thinking about some of the low-hanging fruit, which is we did a lot of work in the past and we had a prior product line or some other functionality that now is you know less valuable or is eventually going to be um, deprecated. There's still a real opportunity to deliver value to customers and to our business, but it's going to take thoughtful repackaging and pricing work. And so whenever we're building and launching something new, got to really think about what the overall experience is for the customer in terms of monetization, not just in terms of utilization. And I think that if you are doing a robust customer research program, you will be able to figure out how to repackage something so that you can uh, continue to deliver value longer. Or if you're going to actually turn it off or no longer sell something, you can come up with a better plan so that you're not disappointing customers too, and you're moving forward in the way that you want. Lastly, really important to have a durable feedback loop with sales and marketing if you're on the product side. And this is in addition to having a proactive customer insights process. There's just no reason for only one team to learn versus having the whole go-to-market team or the org. Like it just doesn't make sense. So like learning in silos, I think is something that's really self-defeating that I've seen in companies. And the way that we get around this is having a customer insights program that spans go-to-market, having these feedback loops with sales and marketing so that information is traveling in all directions. Because you never know when a colleague might have a great insight that can actually help solve the wider business problem that you're trying to solve. And if those feedback loops don't exist, a lot of that data gets lost. And then I think you end up with marketing messages that are totally disconnected from customers and from product. And I think you end up with 
sales, you know, again, feeling like they have to push for these one-offs, otherwise they're never going to close any deals. Like it's just a mess. And this is something that you can, you can solve through some feedback loops. The last topic we'll just talk about quickly is the back office, which I think is a really compelling partner and go-to-market that often gets overlooked. But I think legal and finance have a lot to offer, obviously really important from a business functionality perspective. But there are a couple things I think you need to do. One, I think you've got to really nail down what the terms and concessions are before we launch a new product or before we're trying to sell something. And it might sound simplistic, but it's not. It's actually low-hanging fruit that a lot of companies don't think about. If you've been doing customer research, and hopefully you're also thinking hard about how to bring that research into monetization and pricing, you really know the scope of what customers value, which means you know what you can charge. And that means you should not have one-off concessions. You should be able to get a sense of the kinds of SLAs that are doable for your business and the ones that aren't, they're going to take you off track. And this is the kind of conversation that like, if you're deliberate about you can have it, and then it's a win-win for everyone. It's going to save every other team in, in go-to-market time. And legal and finance are going to be happier too, because they're not wasting time on one-offs that are a distraction for everybody. Second, if you've figured out your business strategy, if you've got tight positioning, and you've gone through a monetization process, you're aligned on what the pricing is for the segment, there's really not much reason to be going off script when it comes to discounts and broader concessions. So having the upfront strategy, having a good revenue process in place is going to make your business more profitable and create less work for everyone. Finally, I think you need to have that conversation with legal as well about what they can and can't live with. Because one thing I've seen in organizations where we're chasing any deal that walks is that marketing and sales teams tend to push the envelope when it comes to what's acceptable. And that understandably causes a lot of concern for legal. It raises the risk profile of the business, even in unregulated spaces. And it just causes a lot of friction with teams like doesn't need to exist. So I think that when you have a solid business strategy and positioning, and you've made the trade-offs up front, it's a lot easier to stick to strong, insightful campaigns and communications and to not be doing things that cause concern across the business. So you have time to have those conversations with legal about what kind of IP matters, again, what the contract lengths, like other things that might be deal breakers or that might be areas that are actually room for compromise. So it's an opportunity to have an honest conversation and like really stick to your guns if you've taken care of the strategic work up front. It gives you space to really partner with other colleagues and grow your business more successfully. So thanks again for your time, Jay. I mean, I just, if I have one takeaway, it's that I think good revenue can deliver so much more for your business if we're thoughtful about it. And what we really need to do is to have that single unifying good revenue strategy if we want to get there, making sure our metrics, our goals are aligned to the end game and making sure that we're having the upfront trade-offs conversations. Because when we don't, what we see are teams wasting budget, time, energy. We see people fighting with each other, lots of finger pointing. And I think good revenue is how we get out of this, uh, out of the box that we're in today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us. If you'd like more information about today's show, check out the show notes or send us a message. Thanks again. 